The title of this evening's talk is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. And some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was a leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s. What is life? It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of a buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who recently said this, From birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, said Adam Frank. Years ago, uh, A Tibetan, a monk, told me about the place where he uh, grew up in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches and, of course, there's no electricity or gas for light and for warmth or for cooking. So for these necessities of life in this part of the world... A fire is necessary. And to start a new fire without any matches each day is uh, quite a project. It takes some time. This monk said that the people in this area never let their fires go completely out. He told me that all day, every day, they keep a very small fire burning, and at night, They cover it lightly with ashes so that in the morning there's at least a glowing coal to start their day. He also told me that the Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're sure that in the morning there's always the chance that they won't be alive. And also he said that when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, that is to let the next person know that they're finished, really finished. So a very deep, important aspect uh, of their practice every day and every night is that they, in a sense, prepare to die. They're ready.
the deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. So consider this. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts, nothing stays. Nothing stays the same. So, paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of impermanence, anicca in Pali. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in a path, in a search, uh, the search of a path uh, towards awakening, a search of a path towards liberation. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, our Buddha-to-be, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal, which is where uh, Sile lives. Siddhartha Gautama seemingly was living the good life there at the foot of the Himalayan mountains. His father and mother were king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. At Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or if he uh, or he would become a renunciate he would become a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering well of course his parents uh in order to keep him on the kingly track uh set about to protect him from encountering as much suffering as they possibly could. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, and dew, and dirt. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own and see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend, Chana, the chariot driver, to take him for a ride through town. Well, his father heard about this and he ordered 
everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken out of view. But as we know, it's just not possible to have uh, this kind of control over life. Not long after Siddhartha and Chana were beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking on the road with a lot of difficulty and covering, covered with oozing sores. He had been so protected he hadn't really seen anything quite like this before. And he said, Chana, what's this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We'll all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everybody gets sick. Well, Siddhartha, as I said, had been so protected, he hadn't seen a person sick to this degree. And he was disturbed by this sight. And he said to Chana, I want to go home. So they left and went back home. But he had quite a restless night. And he wanted to go out again the next morning. So as Chana and Siddhartha drove down the road in the chariot, or rode down the road in the chariot, they weren't driving a car, of course, Siddhartha noticed someone moving very, very slowly, bent over with a cane to help them walk, skin dry and wrinkled and very, very uh, thin, white, wispy hair. He'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he said, what's the matter with this person to Chana? And Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get very old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, Siddhartha said, oh, okay. Let's go home. (laughs) So he did. They went home and he spent another very restless night. But the next day he wanted to go out again. And as they're riding along in the chariot, getting closer to town, they see a group of people all dressed in white. And they're crying and they're wailing. And they're carrying a plank above their head with um, something on it that was covered with cloth. Siddhartha said, what's this? What's going on here? What is it that they're carrying? And Chana said, this is a funeral procession. And they're carrying a dead body. Everybody dies. I'll die. You'll die. Your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, young Siddhartha was quite disturbed again. Said, okay, enough for today. Let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept. But the next morning he wanted to go out again. And it uh, didn't take very long and, and they're chariot ride towards town that Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a, and a grace and a, and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. Siddhartha said, who's that? Chana said, this is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, Okay, let's go home. This is enough. It's said that because of 
Siddhartha's many, many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human beings. The sights that he saw, the what are uh, came to be called the four heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, death, and a truth-seeking yogi, struck him very deeply, struck, struck him quite profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the very obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he found himself very interested and powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again from one of the Buddha's discourses, Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, fearful, and disgusted, oblivious that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. If I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, fearful, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? And he goes on. Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And then he says, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life, as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and more fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in our practice where one knows very clearly and surely that the momentary, very clearly and surely, the momentary nature of all appearances, the powerful direct experience and the deep knowing of impermanence. 
the seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And from the Buddha, what is born will die, what has been gathered will be dispersed, what has been accumulated will be exhausted, what has been built up will collapse, and what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every single breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within. None of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here. It seems so permanently in place. I received a postcard from a friend that had a very beautiful photograph on its front side with some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this was a very pleasant experience. I turned the card over, and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited in seabed evaporite some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So, after reading that, I turned the card back to its photo side and and saw it with a, a different eye and yet still with a pleasurable feeling in viewing a beautiful photograph. The places that we live in often appear and feel as though they've forever been the way they are now. Our attitude and our actions often reflect this. I uh, taught uh, Dhamma in Israel every few years over of, over a period of about 10 years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries about whose place it is. And at one point, I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock, built on rock, it's called Jerusalem Stone, has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. I found an article in in the newspaper uh, a few years ago, and the title of the article drew me. It's called Andromeda is Coming. And this is a short article. This is it. 
Our Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps 100 million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of Earth, save perhaps for the 1970s-era Pioneer and Voyager, Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced the earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. However, he went on, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness this from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form, rupa in Pali, often, usually, mostly, implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart, constantly and without end. So our world can't be uh, can't be solidly objectified. Our world, internally and externally, isn't a noun. It's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know this as an abstraction. We only know this as a concept. And actually, I think, uh, more often we forget it or or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves by accumulating and by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing and hoping and expecting and coveting and fearing. If we rigidly, if we tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or how we want or expect to feel maybe later this evening, All of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face some degree of disappointment or maybe some anger or judgment, maybe sadness, maybe grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, we're actually perpetuating the delusion. We're perpetuating a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. And so much so at times that we believe we have control that things will do what what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. 
as our practice deepens and we begin to see, sense and see and know more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And the tighter that we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. So a good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how do I construct my life, or how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of, all of their assumptions and sometimes misinformation and varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it, hold it on to it all quite tightly. How often do I do this? As we pay a kind of extraordinary attention, meaning as we pay a mindful attention to our experience of body, mind, and heart, we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change. From the seeming solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute, micro-changes in sensations, bodily sensations, to the seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. There's a, a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story uh, that, uh, when I first heard it, was, I was told it was true. It was, it's about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components and breaking it all down and breaking it down and breaking it down and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at that point he, he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing these huge padded slippers just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change? The beginnings, the endings, the births, the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without anicca, there would be no life. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. So, looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of 
const of the constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process not getting caught up not getting lost and sinking in hopes and fears and attachments and regrets we might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume for instance as new life that brings beauty and joy and delight to us each spring and the new day the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up and from the poet William Blake he who binds herself or he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise it was said by the Buddha that at one time when a male deva was reveling and really boasting about the realm of beautiful beings and celestial pleasures that he abided in that upon hearing this a female deva who was a very noble disciple of the Buddha thought this foolish deva imagines his glory to be permanent and unchanging unaware that it's subject to cutting off and perishing and dissolution so she spoke the following stanza in order to dispel this deva's um, delusion don't you know you fool that the maxim of the arahant don't you know you you fool the maxim of the arahants impermanent are all formations their nature is to arise and vanish to live in harmony with this truth brings true happiness so how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things the way of things our nature as nature there are many doors many many mirrors uh, for us in our practice in our life as a whole the Buddha said that there are 84,000 Dharma doors so a very practical example related to our meditation practice you've been sitting maybe for 45 minutes and there's a degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility that has developed and is being known and then the thought comes through ah this is good I'll just stay for here for another hour or maybe even longer and then very quickly after that thought strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up 
Maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or put up with it or tough it out or maybe try to find a way to get rid of it or maybe try to ignore it or somehow pretend it's not there so that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The set idea that you think will lead to the deepest, very deepest peace. Sit another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain uh, via the without mind, meaning uh, a mind not made up, a mind without any preference, without any agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply directly and intimately connect with just what is. Seeing all of the varying sensations uh, occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving. Recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no cling to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with. Sensing, seeing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. Another always available Dharma door, the mirror of the changing seasons all around us and the changing seasons within us. Many years ago, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest that's out behind the meditation center. And it was during the height of autumn color in New England. And I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was beautiful. And I was quite immersed in the experience. And then all of a sudden, an intuitive knowing came in. It wasn't through thought, but a kind of deep intuitive sense that This beauty is death. The world is dying in its unbearable beauty. Well, after that I cried off and on for a couple of days. Not continuously, but at times quite deeply. I was, in a sense, grieving the loss of the world. Feeling my heart breaking. And at the same time, there was a sense of being elated. Though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening, an opening and a release. And soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku, 
when with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, rainstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and the changing sensations of the breath. As we look more and more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of an assumed identity. The assumed solidity of our body and thoughts. Often quickly followed by clinging onto the thoughts and the feelings and the emotional states. All of the habitual fixations that we live with, believe, and call our own. Identify as me, as mine. And think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities, flavors, textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both the gross and a very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands and open our heart, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear being in and with life as it is, begins to relax and open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more and more deeply into the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. Now we're practicing anicca. When a particular Dhamma student of mine began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that he really didn't have any control over the unfolding of events 
And as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it, he said he also began to see and accept that his aging body was no different than the day. He recognized that this too was just simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning to his sit each morning before going to work, forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. Because, in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion. Primarily, he took a stance of irritation and anger at, taking a kind of offensive stance towards things, people, and events not going his way. His early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or his body had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. The forgiveness practice was coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally, uh, people have asked me, as uh, maybe sometimes you've asked yourself or asked others who meditate, why do you practice? And at one point when this was asked of me, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and the clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be able to be fully present at what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be kind of an extraordinary moment. But I think, actually, it will just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring in the body, the mind, and the heart. A moment like any any other moment to just be as you are and to pay attention a moment to be approached and connected with in a very fresh way, that beginner's mind, that don't-know mind, a moment, in fact, that has never been experienced before, again, just like any other moment. So one aspect of the big picture of practice is that I'm practicing towards the possibility 
of being present for this moment or any moment actually over the years the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways of the so-called how the ways the so-called self keeps recreating what we can call the assumed identity that I mentioned a few moments ago. This delusion of a separate, solid, static me. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support what could be called selfing. And letting go. Relinquishing it again and again and again. One way this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I thought I was and recognizing and accepting the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment, breath by breath. And in ways we maybe never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and as it matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomenon. This assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me and I and you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more as just process, beginning, changing, and ending, again and again and again, every minute, every second, through each of the sense doors, if we're really attentive. So, for example, what appears to be a steady solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though, as though phenomena happens with an ongoing, continuous flow. But what in reality But in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and falling away, on the most minute level, very rapidly, second by second by second. The acceptance of change and the acceptance of the forming and the unforming, of the birth and the death, is really, truly the acceptance of life. Acceptance of the nature of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that 
seem so clear and so strong and so right in any given moment. These two can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed uh, in within yourself at times. Many years ago when I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, in those years they had shelves in this very small back dining room uh, for yogis' use to keep special stashes on, such as maybe vitamins and teas or things like that. So one day a note appeared on top of my stash, a note from the person whose stash uh, was right next to mine. And the note was offering me some green tea. I had no idea who this person was. I had not paid any attention uh, to anybody next to me or around me in that back dining room. Well, the note, after reading the note, a very pleasant feeling arose. And it was noticed to some degree. Ah, the thought came, this person's offering me a gift. And I like green tea. So I answered the note with a thank you. Then, uh, not more than a couple days, a day or two, another second note came, offering me a hat. Same person, same handwriting. This person noticed me going outside without a hat on, and it was beginning to get uh, cool, cool outside. Well, there wasn't such a pleasant feeling arising in my mind uh, in response to that note, or reaction to that note. I felt impinged upon. I didn't like the attention at this point, but I answered the note politely with another thank you, and I said, I have a hat. Then, another day or two, and a third note came, and this was a a practice question note. Well, a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in the mind. And it was followed by a very unmindful reaction, to write back a not very polite note. But fortunately, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in, and I didn't write back a nasty note. I simply relaxed and let go and didn't respond at all in any way. And at that point, after that, the note stopped coming. So what is it that is often the root of the particular feeling that arises in relationship to our experience, pleasant or unpleasant feeling. In the story that I just told, the feelings and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the unpleasant, very unpleasant feeling followed by reaction in the mind uh, in relationship to the third note were all clearly rooted in a place of self-centeredness, rooted in me. As we learn to pay a closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience, and vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes, and then maybe rapidly move into seeming needs or very strong rejections. We see that we're 
momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment. States of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, feeling so solid and seem so right and so absolute. Anger is a very powerful, energetic, passionate energy. With a clear intention into anger, seeing and knowing and letting go of self-identification, letting go of self-referencing my anger, my righteous anger, letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality that's inherent in anger, meaning pulling out the thread of self, we can then clearly see what's actually taking place from all sides, from all perspectives. And with this, there's clear presence. There's immediate connection with the possibility then of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, out of which then can spring appropriate, compassionate action, if necessary. Something that quite naturally occurs as we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, is that we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment. We might begin to see that we too are, to whatever degree, also still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness, acted out of, uh, or maybe more accurately, reacted out of old conditioned, habituated places of suffering, many times ourselves. And so we change. And we begin to meet ourselves as well as others with an open, more open-hearted clarity and more compassion. Thirteenth-century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness, in ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love that may include one's enemy. I think it's fair to say that probably for most of us, at least at times, we have had a very strong identification with our face and with our body uh, in in relationship to how it uh, looked and how it was when we were younger. I hear some chuckles, yes. 
<laughs> when my mother was in her late 80s and early 90s, and she was living with me at that time, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself out loud and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over, it's so strange, it's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And once, when she was 91 years old and we were doing this, she said, I look older than anybody else in the whole world. And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, it's so strange, she said. Well, is it strange? I mean, is it really strange? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey. One of my Israeli students, uh, when I was teaching there, gave me this poem. <clears throat> she didn't write it. It's by an Israeli poet uh, by the name of uh, uh, Rachel Chalfi. And it's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a set of grieving nerves fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us. Graciously they prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked in the mirror at your face for a long time? I mean, really just focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting, uh, I spent uh, time outside observing the grasses. And every day, it was during late fall, I went outside and sat and practiced with eye contact with grasses. And I noticed that the grasses were losing their moisture, was drying up. Grass was losing its color, changing shape 
changing form, curling over. I was very acutely aware of this. Are we really any different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take, or how much yoga we do, or no matter how much good healthy food we eat, or however we take care of ourselves, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, our hair gets lost besides losing its color, our bodies change shape. No matter who we are, no matter how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there is nothing we can do about it. And this is a poem by Liesel Mueller, and she called it Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm traveling, I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs nothing, almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. And from the Buddha. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia. The perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret with everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really and truly inclined towards freedom, we're going to have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe, detestable, avoidable, or strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially, about change, the macro and micro cycling of life, and that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we had an automobile accident. 
and my friend was killed. And it was really quite amazing. One minute she was alive and she was driving the car and we had had three wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway dying. And myself with just a a few scrapes and scratches and bruises. And I was washing her dying body with water and then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every moment. I think I actually said I live life fully every second. Because now I knew that it could end in a second. And of course I've forgotten my resolve many times. But I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practices. Although in my 18-year-old self, I don't think I, I uh, didn't think or word it this way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live fully every moment has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities of the seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living, with the process of change, with the beginnings and the endings the births and the deaths. As a a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure uh, many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice, either by a conscious choice or a decision made between this or that, or simply by really being present with a very clear, mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are the healthiest and the most appropriate, both in relationship to oneself and in relationship to others, which at times may result in letting go or renouncing some of our habitual ways of engaging or or not engaging, both outwardly and inwardly, including recognizing and letting go of some of our attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people that we're closest to, but rather this letting go gives us the possibility of relating to them in what may be a new way. There's a Native American teaching from the Cherokee Native Americans uh, from their teachings called A Feast of Days. And this is that teaching. Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? 
A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards understanding the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, impersonal nature of all things, of all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, although change certainly may be difficult, very difficult, and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more deeply, Anicca can really be a profound inspiration to go deeper and deeper into our practice. And we may also come to realize that on one level it's really truly the gift of life. So consider this for a moment. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. No change, no life. In 1985, my house burned down, and no one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we'd arrived, In Mexico, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house, which was in the Michigan woods. And he called me to tell me that my house burned down to the ground. Well, my first response uh, to him in this telephone call was denial. I said, you're kidding. Well, of course, who would call a friend uh, (laughs) up long distance on Christmas and make such a joke? He was not joking. So after we finished our brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried. I burst into tears and I cried very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, she didn't ask any questions. She just put her arms around me and held me while I was crying. And then after I stopped crying, my brother and I sat down and talked. He was also visiting. And by the end of this two-hour conversation with my brother, The fire actually turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me anymore. No more things to bind me. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say, literally. (laughs) And I'm sure, as some of you know, in, uh, in Asian countries it's not 
at all unusual for people in their 50s and 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially um, finished to go to live out the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a a long story short, about a year after that fire, uh, I ended up going to Asia for between a year and a half and two years. And I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently. I was already a practitioner, but I practiced quite ardently and quite diligently. And I continued on this, uh, doing this, practicing this way upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you all now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. some words from Carlos Castaneda from his book Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if, you, uh, if your death makes a gesture to you or if you, catch a, if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And this is from uh, a, a, a brief writing from Michael Ventura, who was one of these three friends that was uh, having lunch with Carlos that day. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but she still felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? And answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone uh, that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, She should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't be just an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no, uh, no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invokes something deeper than the idea of mere will. 
His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who asked these questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send to me, send, send on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they're filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. We begin to understand that we are intimately woven into this endlessly changing reflective web of life. And we also really truly begin to understand that the suffering in ourselves and the suffering in others. The suffering and the anguish created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many hued and faceted jeweled net of life. Our daily practice right here in retreat in our, and in our daily life brings us to confront, sense, and to receive the river of change and uncertainty, the river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive with humor, goodwill, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. As the understanding of Anicca deepens, it actually brings a great relief and a lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And some words from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, yogis, 
I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the I as impermanent, sees forms, sees I consciousness as impermanent, sees I contact, sees whatever feelings arise with I contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent. The mind and mental phenomena, mind consciousness, mind contact, sees whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful or neutral, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbāna. And closing the talk this evening, um, with, with a poem by an Australian poet, his name is Michael Lunig, And with every uh, poem that Michael Lunig writes, he draws a cartoon. He's also a cartoonist. So I have to describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. It's the cartoon of a line drawing of a man, and he's standing up, and he has his arm stretched out to the side, like that, and in it he's uh, holding a frying pan by its handle. And in the frying pan, there's a whole bunch of black stuff, and smoke is billowing out of it. And this is the poem that goes with that line drawing. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening 
of all beings everywhere, which of course includes ourselves. 